If you would, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 5. We're going to pick up the story where we left off uh, last week. Acts chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 12. And my plan tonight is to uh, just walk right through the text. I'll kind of make some commentary along the way. And then I've got kind of one major application point at the end. And um, sometimes I think this will go by pretty quickly. And this could be true for tonight, but it has never been true before. So uh, it'll probably take a long time. No, hopefully not. Um, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. And I'm not going to read through it ahead of time um, because it's fairly, we're just going to finish up the chapter. It's fairly long. So I'll just read through it as we go. Let me give you a, a reminder about what just took place in the passage we looked at last week, which was this scene with Ananias and Sapphira, the notorious scene where Ananias and Sapphira sell a field and they uh, give the money to the church, but before they give it to the church, they withhold some of the funds for themselves. And then in giving it to the church, they do it giving the impression that they're giving the full sale price of the field to the church in order to look generous because that's what some other people were doing. Remember, um, it was Barnabas, I think, who had sold some property gave all the proceeds to the church, and Ananias and Sapphira are kind of trying to make it look like they're doing the same thing, but they're not really doing the same thing, and so they're playing, gener- they're, they're playing like they're generous, and so it's this terrible, hypocritical situation. The early church apparently needs to know in the starkest terms that when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, uh, we, we don't play games, and so God... Uh, gives a very quick and severe form of punishment to Ananias and Sapphira, and he takes their lives for this hypocrisy. And I guess the early church needed for there to be an exclamation point on the Lord's uh, disapproval of hypocrisy. Um, What it produced was uh, fear in the church. Uh, And we assume that that's the healthiest kind of fear, that is to say like a reverent fear uh, for the Lord Jesus, that, that he is not up for us playing games with him. But here's the, here's the interesting thing about it. It, it totally uh, did not stunt the growth of the church. In fact, after this, the church explodes. And we're going to start reading about that in uh, chapter 5, verse 12 tonight. God is powerfully at work in the church, starting in verse 12. Luke tells us, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together, the apostles were all together, in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. Probably meaning none of the rest of the believers. Probably just the apostles. I'll elaborate on that in a second. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The judgment on Ananias and Sapphira has absolutely no impact on the forward progress 
of the mission of the church. It doesn't slow things down at all. And we're told in verse 12 that one of the things that is a clear marker of the ongoing favor and power of God are the miraculous signs and wonders that are happening through the hands of the apostles. We learn in verses 15 and 16 that it consisted of healings and of some sort of uh, rescue from uh, demonic powers. So what you have is basically the continuation of a very Jesus-like ministry taking place through the apostles, healing, uh, deliverances, and it created such a reputation around this new Christian movement that the people from all the surrounding region uh, outside of Jerusalem were bringing people in droves, bringing the sick, and they were being healed. So here's the deal. I guess it's not just empty rumors that are flying around about this great work of God through this group of Jesus followers. Uh, there, there's actually a verifiable movement of God. Lots of people are being healed. Uh, so here's what's going on. The apostles, they would gather together in the temple. Uh, Solomon's portico was an area of the temple. They'd gather together in the temple, and some portion of the population, probably believers, um, they, they didn't gather with them. They, they wouldn't draw near to them. And probably what you've got going on here is an awareness of, of the fact that um, the Jewish leadership is not happy with the apostles. In chapter 4, they've already been arrested. They've been commanded not to speak. And as they go into the temple and are teaching about Jesus, you, you get the, uh, what Luke seems to be indicating is that the other believers are, were, were maybe standing back a little bit, uh, probably because of the threats of the Jewish leadership. However, the general population wasn't necessarily keeping their distance. The general population held these guys in really high esteem because clearly something powerful was taking place and there was enormous growth of the church movement. In fact, Luke goes on to say here in, what is it, verse uh, 14, that there were more believers coming to Jesus than ever. So uh, that's actually a pretty big statement because in chapter 2, you might remember, 3,000 people came to Jesus in one day. And then in chapter 4, there was another instance where 5,000 men, didn't even count the women and children, also came uh, to Jesus. And so now, more than ever, people are coming to Jesus. So there's, there, there, there's I don't know, it's kind of a dynamic scene. The apostles are healing people. And uh, some of the new believers are amazed by it, but some of them are keeping distance. And, and then uh, the general population is really amazed at what's going on. And more than ever, people are coming to Jesus and the reputation is spreading. And by now, we ought to know that when this kind of thing is happening, trouble is not far away. The Jewish leadership is not smiling on this situation. And uh, in fact, they're quite jealous. Uh, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. There's jealousy among the Jewish leadership. They were jealous of Jesus' ministry. They're now jealous of the apostles' ministry because it's drawing a lot of attention. And it's actually drawing a lot of followers. And they arrest the apostles now for the second time. The first time they arrested them was in chapter 4, verse 3. They put them in a public prison, uh, meaning that the imprisonment uh, was done in such a way, or the place where they were, were placed was such that the public had some visible access 
uh, to the fact that the apostles have been arrested. In other words, it's, it's open, official opposition to the Christian movement, and the uh, Jewish leadership wants the public to know we've imprisoned these guys. And um, then something amazing happens, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So there's a heavenly jailbreak, uh, which is a clear indicator that God is on the side of who in this conflict? He's on the side of the apostles. And uh, ultimately, the Jewish leadership's attempts to stop this movement are going to prove to be futile, although that's not going to keep them from trying. The angel uh, breaks them out of jail, gives them a command, go into the temple where you were arrested last night, and I want you to share the words of this life. I want you to tell people about Jesus, which is, of course, the very thing that the Jewish leadership has forbidden these guys to do. It's the reason they were arrested last night. So it doesn't matter. The apostles leave the prison. They go straight to the temple. They begin to teach at daybreak, which is the very thing that Jesus commissioned them to do. So the Jewish leadership says, don't speak in the name. Jesus says, you are my witnesses. And then the angel says, yeah, you're his witnesses. So the angel reaffirms the very thing that Jesus has told them to do, even though they're getting arrested for it. So at daybreak, they're in the temple, and the Jewish leadership actually doesn't know it yet. This is kind of interesting, verse 21, the second half of verse 21. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council or the Sanhedrin, the, high, the Jewish high court, all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Bring them in. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. The Sanhedrin is gathered. The Jewish, it's just like the Supreme Court. It's the highest court in, in the Jewish culture. They're gathered. They're ready to bring the prisoners in for another trial. They, remember, they've already had a trial in chapter 4. And uh, when they go to fetch the apostles, the door is locked. The guards are standing guard, and the prison is Empty and the the council or or the uh, not the council but the um, the the captain and his and his guards are totally confused about what's going on, and then someone comes in and says to the council, "Hey, um, they're actually in the temple, preaching again." Now, what's fascinating about Luke's account is that never again in this entire uh, well in the trial that follows, never is it even asked of them, "How did you get out of prison?" I don't think they really want to know, um, but it's, it never comes up again. And uh, it, it's uh, what does what does come up, and what they kind of focus on is getting them back into custody so that they can tell them to stop teaching. Because that's really, I mean, that's the agenda. We got to shut these guys up. Verse twenty-six. Then the captain 
with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the, by the people. They go to the temple, uh, they grab them, bring them back in, not by force, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God, whom God has given to those who obey him. So verse 26 says that the, uh, the campus cop squad, which is what this guy is, the captain with his officers, they go to the temple. He's like the temple police. They go to the uh, they go to the temple, they get the apostles, they bring them back before the council, but they don't do it forcefully. And what, what that indicates is, is that it, it wasn't against the rules and it was totally normal for these guys to be quite violent in their arrest. But they don't do it in this case because they're afraid that if they show up to the temple and arrest the guys who've been healing everybody's mom and dad, uh, that they're going to cause a riot. So uh, they don't want... They're afraid of being killed. The officers are afraid of being killed if they get violent in the arrest of these men as they're teaching all the people in the temple. Um, There's just too much respect for them at this point. So they somehow gently coax them into coming back to the council and the apostles don't resist. And the high priest says to them in verse 28, basically, we told you to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. You keep trying to make us look bad by telling everyone that we killed this guy. And I'm thinking... Yeah, you did. Uh, and that's, you know, and Peter kind of gets to that point in just a second. Um, in verses 29 to 32, the apostles, led again by Peter, present their defense, and it's essentially the same defense that they gave in chapter 4, at least at its heart. Our job is to obey God, not you. That's the brunt of the, of the defense. And then in verses 30 to 32, Peter kind of breaks into an explanation slash gospel presentation of what it is that they are called to do. And in some ways, what Peter's doing here is giving the Jewish leadership an opportunity to turn. Peter's sharing the gospel both to to clarify their calling and to call the Jewish leadership to turn to Jesus. He says, you killed Jesus. That's why we keep saying it. He says, God raised him from the dead. God exalted Jesus to the right hand of God. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus grants repentance, and he grants forgiveness, even to his killers. That's what what Peter's trying to do, get these guys to just own what they did and let them know that there's forgiveness for them. There's forgiveness for anyone who will come to Jesus. Our job, Peter goes on to say, is to testify. And the Holy Spirit stands behind it. And that, as, as evidenced by the healings and by the fact that a ton of people are coming to Jesus. I want you to notice that the entire Trinity is involved here. Um, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is leader and Savior, and the Holy Spirit stands behind it. And so the, what, what, what they're essentially telling the Jewish leadership is that God is on the side of what we're doing 
in this work that exalts Jesus Christ. God is on our side. The Jewish leadership is in the wrong. You guys need to repent. And the Jewish leadership is totally ticked at this, uh, at this defense that the apostles have given. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. The initial desire that is evoked in the heart of the Jewish leadership by the gospel, as Peter presents the gospel to them, the initial desire that's provoked is murderous. They they literally want to kill the apostles when they hear the gospel. What's, What's going on here? When these guys make this claim about Jesus Christ and they present it to the Jewish leadership and they expose their guilt and, they, and, they, and the Jewish leadership is feeling a threat to their power because Peter and the apostles are unwilling to obey, right? When, when they're kind of faced with their own guilt and the exaltation of Jesus and a threat to their power, uh, these guys are deeply repulsed. And I'd like to take a moment just to kind of talk about What's happening in the heart of the unregenerate person when the gospel is presented? This gives us a little bit of an insight of what's happening in the ungenerated heart. When I say the unregenerated, did I say regenerated? That's what I meant. Unregenerated heart. When I say unregenerate, what I'm referring to is the heart that has not been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. The heart that is looking at Jesus and still seeing nothing compelling or beautiful about him. One way we might say it is, this is the heart that has not been born again. It's still dead, it's still numb to the glory of Christ. It's the heart that we're all born with. Everybody's born with a heart that is hard to God by nature, and only can it be changed by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And when that heart hears about Christ... It does not find him compelling. When that heart, when the the unregenerate heart hears that he died for sin, the response is, that's ridiculous. When he hears that he rose from the dead, the response of the unregenerate heart is, that's foolishness. When the unregenerate heart hears that Jesus is the leader and Jesus is the Savior, the unregenerate heart says, that's offensive. When the unregenerate heart is told, uh, Jesus offers Uh, forgiveness to those who repent, the unregenerate heart says that's uh, presumptuous. It pushes away. So when people are proclaiming Jesus, promoting Jesus in his message, those who don't find him compelling strongly resist the teaching and they hold tight to their lives. They hold tight to their ways. They hold tight to their values. They hold tight to their power. They hold tight to control. That's what's happening with these guys. They're holding tightly to these things. They do whatever it takes to preserve self because that's what the unregenerate heart is committed to, is the preservation of self. And, and, And it feels in the gospel the encroachment of an alternative kingdom. The gospel is proclaimed to the unregenerate heart, and the unregenerate heart feels you're asking for a new loyalty, and I I love the things that I have, and I can feel in this that you're trying to pull me away from these things. 
The kingdom of God is calling for a new way of life, which requires a change in direction. The gospel calls us to a new value system, which requires you to devalue the things that were precious to you before. The gospel is calling these men to a new authority, which requires them to abandon the authority of self. The gospel calls for a new loyalty. And it's not a loyalty to self. And these guys feel it. The unregenerate heart is devoted to the defense and the preservation of self. And these guys are repulsed at the idea of having to, check it out, give up their lives. They're repulsed at the thought that they're going to have to give up their lives. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to silence the demands of the encroaching kingdom. In fact, they'll kill. Like, you, keep, you, you, you bring your kingdom and your demands my way, and I will eliminate that holding on to self. I will destroy the threat. So these guys, these guys actually want to kill in order to preserve self in the kingdom of self. And thankfully, there's at least one cool head in the room. And you know that saying, cooler heads prevail. Well, Gamaliel is the only cool head in the room. Verse 34, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, he's, this is a rabbi, and, he's, and he's, he addresses the council, and here's what he says, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So right as the council is on the verge of killing the apostles, a highly respected leader, rabbi among the council, has some advice, and he says, be slow to draw a conclusion uh, about whether or not... Um, well, just be careful what you do with these guys. And let me give you a couple examples of uh, some men who rose up, and they drew a bunch of disciples after them, and when the man was killed, both uh, Theudas and Judas of Galilee, these were two leaders, they had a following, and when those men were killed, their following died out. We killed Jesus already. If this is of human origin, same thing is going to happen. These followers will die out. If it's not of human origin, if it's from God, you're not going to be able to beat it. And, you might, and you're going you're to find yourself fighting with God. So... Perhaps the miracles had made some sort of impact on at least Gamaliel, and he says we need to back off of this and let it go. And thankfully, the council takes his advice, at least in the sense that they decide not to kill the apostles, second half of verse 39. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This, I, this, is a cool, this is a cool way for this story to end. The apostles are brought back into uh, the council. They're physically beaten. They're commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they're released. It's the same outcome in many ways as that in chapter 4, except now the Sanhedrin's threats are reinforced with corporal punishment. And oddly, the beating doesn't have at all the effect that they hoped that it would. You know, it has the opposite effect. Rather than increasing the apostles' respect for the authority of the Sanhedrin, and rather than diminishing the apostles' willingness to go spread the teachings about Jesus, the beating is seen by the apostles. I mean, how, can you, how can you beat this? The teaching is seen by the apostles as a reinforcement of the fact they're on the right path. You just, you cannot beat these guys, you know? We, literally, we beat them, and they're like, oh, this must be God's will. It's just, it's impossible to crush this. They see it as an honor to be beaten for the name of Jesus, not an obstacle to forward progress. For them, it is actually a motivator of forward progress. So what do they do next? Verse 42 says um, that every single day they went to the temple... I mean, it's funny to me that they go house to house and talk about Jesus. That seems like, you know, if we're going to keep doing this, we better like stay on the down low. No, they go back to the temple daily. They go back to the temple daily and they teach about Jesus and they go house to house. I mean, they're just, you just cannot shut them down. They keep doing exactly what they're doing before. Okay, that's that's the main text. And I have one main takeaway and uh, it has something to do with this. I want to learn about. Um, I want to learn something about the apostles' persistence as missionaries, because this 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 passage, this story, tells us something about this uh, unquenchable drive that they have to get the mission moving forward. In chapter four, they're preaching. There are miracles. And it results in an arrest. When they're arrested and in custody, the apostles are threatened. They're commanded to be silent. They're then released. And then they keep on preaching and the Holy Spirit keeps on working. So they persist. That happened in chapter 4. In chapter 5, verse 18, they're preaching. There are miracles taking place. They're arrested a second time. They're miraculously then freed by the angel. And they keep on preaching in the temple. So they persist. And then they're arrested a third time the next morning because they're preaching in the temple again. They're commanded to be silent. This time they're actually beaten and then they're released. And then they go and they preach in the temple and from house to house. I mean, it only, it's, it's like fuel is only added to the fire. So they persist. They persist. They persist. What's driving this? What's fueling their persistence. I think there are at least three things. I think there are at least three things that are uh, driving the persistence of the apostles forward. And the first one is this. I think it's simply, this is probably the most important one, it's simply this. They love the Savior and His message. 
It's coming from desire. It's coming from a, a, a deep, heartfelt passion uh, for Jesus. He's not just a concept to them. Jesus is not just an idea, and he's not just a distant memory. This is a man that they knew very personally. They saw him crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. They saw him conquer death. They saw him conquer sin, and they love him, and they love the message about him. He is their, as Peter says, their leader, and he is their savior. And they'll obey him at any cost, even at the cost of their lives. They'll even give up their lives because they love him and his message so much. They value him above everything. They love him. They love him above all things, including self. And that's, the, that's I think, one of the main differences between how these guys are insistent on talking about Jesus and the Jewish authorities uh, want to kill them. I think it has to do with where your ultimate loyalties are. And in the unregenerate heart, the ultimate loyalties are self and all the things that feed self. And in the regenerated heart, the ultimate value is Jesus above everything else to the point where where you'll even give your life because your life is not ultimate any longer. Once your eyes are open to Jesus for who he really is, and that was certainly the case in the lives of the apostles, once your eyes are really open and you truly have been impacted by his grace, your grip on everything else begins to now loosen. So your grip on money starts to loosen. That's what was happening with Barnabas. Your grip on living for your family as ultimate it actually begins to loosen. Living to love and serve your family and have a healthy family is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. And when Jesus becomes the ultimate thing, even living for your family, you realize this cannot be the final highest value for you. You loosen your grip on your dreams. Having a dream is a good thing. Having hands that won't let go of it no matter what is an idolatrous thing. It loosens your grip. When you you see Jesus for who he is, it loosens your grip on your politics so that you're not loyal to your party at all costs. Even if it means you got to call out the judge who's sexually abusing minors. You don't stand up for him just because he's a Republican. Because your, your, your hands are loosed, your grip is loose when it comes to your politics. Your hands become loose when it comes to living for sleep or the health of your body. Those are good things. But they are gods in our lives sometimes. And when Jesus is your ultimate value, the hands loosen around these things. Jesus changes our perspective on these things. He loosens our grip because they're not ultimate. And when we see Jesus, a new value surpasses the old things that we valued most of all. I was stuck in drug use. When I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I was stuck there. I loved it. I loved it more probably than anything. 
And that's why I was stuck, because I couldn't find anything that was better. Until Jesus opened my eyes. And you know what he did? He ruined my taste for drugs. He ruined my appetite. I found something better than drugs. And that's what freed me. You talk about Jesus setting people free. What do we mean by that? We mean that people are no longer in bondage to the things that they love most. And Jesus comes and he opens our eyes to who he is and it allows us to release our grip because our appetite has been ruined because we tasted something better. We've been set free. Love for Jesus can even loosen your grip on staying alive. Because that's not your number one agenda anymore. Seek first, not your best life now. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's number one. And it may cost you your life. The kingdom now governs the way that we live. And that means that self isn't number one any longer. And didn't Jesus say that pretty clearly, like over and over again? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Pastor Bob Brown, I know I always say this, but I love it. It's such a good quote. Pastor Bob Brown used to say, there's only one thing you do with a cross. You die on it. Take up your cross. Why? To die. You're going to death. Or whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's an invitation to die so that you can gain life. I mean, didn't he tell us this over and over? Paul says to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Once you have tasted the mercies of God, Paul says, I'm appealing to you to now live by a different mode of operation. And rather than live for self, you live now as a living sacrifice. Think about those two words. Living. So you're still buying groceries, watching Space Camp with your kids, and going to the school play, and making dinner, and doing your nine to five. You're still living, but you're a living sacrifice. Which means that you're giving up your life. You might say, you might think of it as, in these terms, you're like a dead man walking. Dead in the sense that you are dead to what? Self. And the life that you now live, you're not living for self, you're living out of love for Jesus. And you've surrendered all your rights to yourself. I mean, didn't Jesus make this clear? Take up your cross. Lose your life. Live like you're dead as a living sacrifice. 
how many people want to identify with Jesus? There's a lot of good reasons to identify with Jesus. A lot of, just practically speaking, to be a part of a community like this, there's so many benefits. comes with a lot of friends. comes with, with, with people who care about you. There's good food. There's, there's fellowship. There's, there's stability. There's community. There are a lot of good things that just come kind of naturally with the culture of Jesus and his people. But how many people want the benefits of belonging to Jesus, but they don't want to give up their life? They don't want to give it up. You're still living like your life belongs to you. But you, still, but you want to kind of be identified with Jesus. And here's, here's, here's what I want to say. You can't have both. You can't. You can't follow Jesus and live for yourself. The only way you can follow Jesus is if you take up your cross and self has to die on that cross. You can't have both. If we want Jesus, we give up our rights to live. And now Jesus calls the shots. He calls the shots for my life. I'm told, uh, you know, this is super practical stuff. I was talking with my wife before we came here tonight. We're talking about what to do for dinner, and I was getting all bent out of shape because I didn't want the kind of, I get bent out of shape over food because I love food. So she's got this idea for dinner. I'm like, no, I don't like that. Whining like a baby. And I'm thinking, okay, living sacrifice. Die, 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 die. Like, I'm, I'm making a big deal out of this. I am not living like a dead man right now. In fact, self is ruling me right now. He's making a mess of my marriage. <laughs> I don't call the shots for my life. Jesus calls the shots. You want to know why these guys were so useful for the purposes of the kingdom. You want to know why they were such great missionaries? They were dead. They were dead men. So they were very usable in the hands of their master. They had come to terms with Jesus' way. They loved Jesus more than anything. They've completely surrendered the rights to their lives, and now they're willing to give their lives for the sake of Jesus. Whatever it takes to obey him, whatever it takes to make him known, they live and they die for him now. And so they persist because Jesus told them to. And I got my, you know, I got my commands. I know what I'm supposed to do. He said, go to the temple, preach. Who am I supposed to, who am I going to obey, God or man? Only a dead man chooses God. The first reason for their persistence, I think, is they just loved Jesus above everything else. They loved him above everything else, including self. So they were growing increasingly dead to self and just living for the agenda of what was most valuable. That's the first reason. Here's the second, here's the second reason. These last two are pretty quick. The second reason, or the second yeah, reason for the drive or their persistence was the undeniable presence of God in their community. So not only did they love Jesus, but there was a very uh, observable work of God happening among them as the apostles are, you know, healing people and delivering people from satanic bondage. 
And on top of that, not only are the apostles kind of seeing this, but the general public can see it too. The, the church is doing really good things in, the, uh, in Jerusalem. And um, regardless of the Sanhedrin's opposition, the, the general public is, is thinking, these guys are doing a lot of good, actually. I know that our leaders are saying that they're, they're putting them in public prison, but the, see, Luke says that they were held in high esteem by all the people. And Luke says that the, that the temple guard was afraid that if they were violent toward the apostles, that the people would kill them in response, kill the temple guard in response. So it's very clear to like the whole civic community, good things are happening through this church. So alongside their kind of stubborn gospel proclamation, there was this undeniable work of God taking place. Um, And so the apostles aren't just taking it on faith that God is with them. They're actually experiencing the reality. God is doing good things in their midst. So the first thing is that they love Jesus. That fuels persistence. The second thing is that God is present and active in their ministry. That fuels persistence. You know, we got a good thing going here. The third thing that drives their persistence is this bizarre kingdom reality that trouble trouble sometimes affirms the calling. Trouble affirms the calling. Jesus told us to do this. He's clearly at work in our midst, and we're facing opposition. Awesome. Right? It's that third thing that's very king. It's, it's a weird dynamic in the kingdom. We're facing opposition. Awesome. God, God must be in this. Um, And the only way that makes sense is if you understand that the kingdom of God is light breaking into darkness. That's what makes sense of the fact that when darkness strikes back, uh, we know, hey, you know, actually, I think we're onto something here. We must be making some advancement because the enemy is giving pushback. The whole flavor of the Christian mission tastes like a cross. I, I don't know... I don't know if we appreciate that enough. I think, our desi- I think we want to believe that because God loves us, he wants to make our lives easy. But um, the flavor of the mission is, is the flavor of a cross. And again, that's really, that's really clear biblically. The nature of our calling, we follow in the footsteps of, of a crucified Messiah. We've been told to take up our cross. We're called to be living sacrifices, suffering is not the exception for the Christian life. It's actually the rule in this age. It's where glory shines the brightest, is when the people of God are suffering and they're suffering well because their hope is in their God in the midst of their suffering. And when out of love for God, we pursue His mission and we see Him on the move and we face fear, don't be troubled by that face fear. When we face trouble, don't be troubled by that. Don't be fearful because of that. Because we knew it was coming. And it only means that we're walking in the footsteps of Jesus himself. So, persistence. Persistence. Um, Love God with all your heart. Give yourself to his purposes as a living sacrifice. Keep your eyes peeled for the ways that God is at work in and through your life. Be encouraged when you face trouble and persist in those times because it means that the kingdom of God is on the move. 